Good to see you here today. Thank you, Evan. Wonderful job. Take your Bibles. Turn, if you would, John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and beginning in verse number 19. No doubt, somewhere in the past, you've heard a series of sermons by someone entitled The Last Seven Words of Jesus. What that is usually consists is a, a series of sermons on the last seven statements that Christ made from the cross, his, such as his words concerning those who had crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they need not what they do. The words to his mother, woman, behold your son. The words of Jesus to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The words concerning his pain, I thirst, and my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His words of submission, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And finally, his cry of victory, it is finished. Those statements are, of course, very important and worthy of our study, but they are not, in fact, the final words of Christ. Jesus appeared to his disciples and he spoke with them for some 40 days after the resurrection. Today I want you to consider with me some of those last words after the resurrection. We've been looking at what happened on Sunday, the third day after Jesus had been buried in a borrowed tomb. What a day it had been. There had been multiple trips to and from the tomb and multiple retellings of what had transpired. But Sunday's revelations, which had produced such excitement, had given way to Sunday night's fear. The disciples and others, such as the Emmaus Road disciples and Mary, who had testified of seeing Jesus, have gathered together in a private room where behind closed doors they tried to sort out what they have heard. When suddenly, according to verse 19, Jesus appears. It says, then the same day at the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, peace to you, as the Father has, given, has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven to them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see... In his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, 
Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. I want to share with you this morning three statements that Christ makes after the resurrection and their importance to us today. First of all, I want you to see his statement, peace be with you. Said in verse 19, on the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus gave them the greeting, peace. Although shalom is a standard greeting among Jews then and has been for centuries since, it was given on that day as a way of giving assurance. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, he spoke to the fear. He said in verse 19, peace be with you. I want you to think for a moment about how powerful a revelation this is of the heart of our Savior. Think for a moment about who he's speaking to. These are his disciples, the men who has spent the last three years teaching. They had all assured him that they loved him supremely and that they were willing to die for him. Yet when the pressure was on, they couldn't even stay awake to pray with him. When the authorities came to arrest him, all but one stood idly by and let it happen. The awful truth was that one of them had betrayed him and the rest of them had deserted him. How do you greet a friend like that? I think the first words that most of us would have said after such experience would not have been, peace be with you. We would have been more likely to say, you miserable cowards. What, friends like you, who needs enemies? If I have it to do again, I'll never trust you. But isn't it wonderful that Jesus didn't say any of those things? He does not say, shame on you. I'm really disappointed in you. He spoke to their fear, and he promises them peace. Now, there are two kinds of peace spoken of in the Bible. There is peace with God, and there is the peace of God. First, we must come to peace with God. This is what is described by Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, where he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the peace that is available to sinners through Jesus Christ's payment on the cross for our sins. As sinners, our sin has caused an enmity between us and God. But Christ made peace available by bearing the punishment for our sins on the cross. But he also offers us the peace of God. The Bible speaks of this peace when Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How delighted the disciples must have been when Jesus appeared and he calmed their troubled hearts by saying, peace, peace be with you. Not only did he reassure them with words, but he also showed him his hands and his feet and his side. 
which bore the marks of the cross. The sight of those wounds convinced them and their fear gave way to joy. In verse 20 we read, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. His second statement was, as the Father sent me, I also send you. Jesus said, peace to you, as the Father sent me, I sent you. So he now proceeds to commission and to empower his disciples for service. Though we don't often recognize it, this is one of the five places in the Bible that records the Lord's great commission. It, of course, occurs at the end of each of the four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John. And once again, in the beginning of the book of Acts, the emphasis here is on I. It is the crucified and risen Jesus who is sending his disciples into the world. First of all, he talks about receiving the Holy Spirit in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. We now come to something that is recorded only in the Gospel of John. Jesus breathed on his disciples. It is not obvious how we are to relate to what is happening here and what happened to the day on Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Some maintain here that the disciples received the life of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Others say that what we have here is the announcement of the Holy Spirit and in the day of Pentecost was the historic fulfillment of that promise. However you look at it, Jesus is empowering his disciples to carry out the Great Commission. And then he speaks to them about forgiving and retaining. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This passage has been the justification, though unwarranted, for the Roman Catholics to practice that ordained priests have the authority to forgive or retain sin contingent upon confession and performing certain deeds of penance. There are a couple things that we should establish. First, it is the clear teaching of Scripture repeated on numerous occasions that no one can forgive sin except God. Secondly, there is no instance recorded any place in the New Testament where one of the apostles takes it upon himself to say that he has the authority to pardon anyone's sin. A closer examination reveals that the verbs that are translated be forgiven and are retained are in the perfect tense, indicating that the forgiveness involved is something that is determined in heaven and now merely proclaimed on the earth. The meaning then is if we tell people about forgiveness, we are extending forgiveness to them. But that forgiveness does not come from us. It comes from God. Conversely, if we do not tell them, we are not extending forgiveness, and thus their sins are retained. The third statement was, stop doubting and believe. What a day it has been. Without a doubt, there's never been another one like it. But one disciple, Thomas, 
has missed the whole thing. We all deal with our emotions and our grief differently. Perhaps Thomas's grief had driven him to be by himself. He certainly is no coward, for he was the one who had declared in John chapter 11 and verse 16, let us go that we may die with him. And I believe he meant what he said. But in John chapter 20 and verse 24, it says, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and I put my finger into the print of those nails and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. On the very day of the resurrection, the risen Lord made his way to the house where his rather distressed and discouraged disciples had gathered. And he provided them with evidence of and assurance that he had indeed risen. Unfortunately for Thomas, he was not present for that visit. Thomas missed the entire thing. Why wasn't he here? Well, as I've already said, from what we can surmise of his, his personality, perhaps he wanted to get away, be alone with his grief. Not everyone deals with grief in the same way. The Bible does not tell us much about Thomas. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what he did before becoming a disciple. He is usually introduced as Thomas, also called Didymus. Thomas is the Aramaic word meaning twin, and Didymus is the Greek word meaning twin. Some people think that Thomas and Matthew were the twin brothers because they are often linked together in the list of disciples, but we simply do not know for sure. When he did show up where the disciples were gathered, he said to them, they said to him, we have seen the Lord. And his response was, unless I see it, unless I experience, I will not believe. Thomas could not bring himself to believe. He goes so far as to say, I will not believe. And the, sta the statement is a duggable negative, and he says, I positively will never believe. It was for this statement that he would forever be known as Doubting Thomas. But in all fairness, he is only asking for what all the other disciples have already received. In John chapter 20 and verse 20, we're told that Jesus had shown up in the room where the disciples were, and he showed them his hands and feet. It was then, it says, that the disciples believed. Well, there are a couple of things that we need to understand about doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is the problem of the intellect. Unbelief is a problem of the heart. Unbelief will not believe no matter what evidence is given. Thomas was plagued with doubt, not unbelief. Therefore, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but unbelief. In fact, we have, you can have an extremely strong faith and still have some doubts. Flannery O'Connor said, doubt always coexists with faith. For in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? 
In Mark chapter 9, you'll remember a story of a man whose son was demon-possessed who came to Jesus to have him healed. He asked the Lord, he said, Lord, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. And Jesus responded by saying, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The father's response to Jesus was a classic. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He had faith and doubt at the same time. So doubt is not the opposite of faith. And secondly, I want you to see that doubt is not unforgivable. God does not condemn us when we have honest questions. Do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison? The man who had exclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God had begun to have doubts about who Jesus was in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus did not criticize John or berate him for his lack of faith. He simply reminded John of Scripture and how he, Jesus, fulfilled those Scriptures. This demonstrates that when we have doubts and we take them to God, we can be assured that he will not condemn us. He will lovingly help us to answer our questions so that we can leave our doubts behind. While not altogether convinced of the truth of the resurrection by the testimony of the other disciples, at least Thomas was present eight days later when Jesus appeared. It says in verse 26, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. And look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. But do not be unbelieving, but believing. John makes it very clear that the doors to the meeting room were closed. In fact, he uses a present tense here that we could take to mean that they were not only shut, they were locked. This means that the Lord appeared to them without having to open the doors thus indicating that his resurrection body was not bound by the same limitations as his physical body. The last thing about doubt is I want you to see that faith can be cultivated. Thomas had stated that without physical proof of the resurrection, i.e. the nails in his hand, the nails in his feet, the hole in his side, he would not believe that this was the resurrected Lord. But he was mistaken in that. Thomas had laid out what he thought would be the necessary prerequisites for him to believe. He was, of course, wrong. All his doubts were in due course swept away simply by finding himself in the presence of the risen Lord. Thomas is not as big a skeptic as he thought he was. When Jesus stood before him, he no longer felt the need to feel the wounds in his body. In verse 27, Jesus called on Thomas to make the very test that he had requested. Reach your finger here. Touch my hands. Reach your hand here and put it in my side. Did he do that? I don't believe so. No, I don't think so. There is no evidence that he did because in verse 29, Jesus says, because you have seen me, 
Not because you have touched me. Because you have seen me, you have believed. So what is it that brought conviction to Thomas? Was it the fact that Jesus knew what he said when he wasn't there? What a sense of shame it must have been to realize that Jesus had heard every obstinate and unbelieving word he had uttered. Or was it simply standing in the presence of the risen Lord that brought belief? We don't know. John doesn't tell us. But it no longer appears that Thomas wanted any longer to make the test that he had previously demanded. In verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. That carries the idea of become not unbelieving, but believing. The implication is that we can cultivate the habit of either belief or unbelief in our heart. The rebound of Thomas's faith was both dramatic and moving. Thomas makes one of the grandest statements concerning Jesus that any of the apostles makes. He says in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He is the only apostle in the New Testament to address our Lord as God. Perhaps he should be remembered for that and not for his temporary doubt. In response to Thomas's confession of faith, Jesus says in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not, uh, not yet seen and yet have believed. Apparently, Thomas never doubted again. There's considerable amount of ancient, though non-biblical, testimony that suggests that Thomas carried the gospel to India. The strongest traditions say that he was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear and that he is buried on a hill near Madras, India. He died for the Lord he once doubted. In the last part of verse 29, Jesus tells Thomas something that you and I need to hear today. He tells Thomas that he had believed because he had seen with his own eyes. And then he says something very important. He says, those who believe without seeing are even more blessed, and that's you and I. Closing, let me say, Helen Keller once wrote about doubt. She said, it need not discourage us if we have doubts. Healthy questions keep faith dynamic. In fact, unless we start with doubts, we cannot have a deep-rooted faith. No one who believes lightly and unthinkingly has much of a belief. One who has a faith which is not to be shaken has won it through blood and tears, has worked his or her way from doubt to truth as one who reaches a clearing after going through a thicket of brambles and thorns. I want to conclude this morning by considering two things. How can we win over doubt in our lives? First, see if you can find the root of your doubt. Sometimes it's a false understanding of who God is and what God does. That can cause us a problem. If we believe that being a Christian is a guarantee of health and prosperity, we're going to question our faith when sickness comes or our finances are lacking. 
if we think that being a Christian is a blanket protection from all troubles in life, we're going to begin to doubt when difficulties come into our lives. The problem of these kinds of doubt is not God. It is our false understanding of who God is and what God promises. Some people have doubts because their faith is based on feelings, on emotion, not facts. But when the feelings and the emotions fade, they begin to doubt if their faith was real. The problem then is a misconception that faith is fundamentally a feeling, and it is not. It is an act of our will. Secondly, when we're struggling with doubt, some of us have the tendency to be like Thomas. We isolate ourselves. But what we need to do is ask others and God for help. Remember that when John the Baptist realized that his doubt was that was creeping into his life, instead of denying it or ignoring it, he faced it. He did a very simple thing. He went to Jesus and he asked for help. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you do for us. We are blessed. And even this week, we set aside some time to consider how blessed we are and how thankful we ought to be. Help us, Lord, truly to understand what a blessing that you are in our lives. It may be that there's someone here this morning that really is struggling with doubt. Lord, I pray that the things that we have shared and your word will be a reassurance to them and lead them to a place that they can overcome that doubt and fear. We thank you, Lord, that you're always with us, that you love us in spite of ourselves, that whether we're worthy or unworthy, you still love us. Whether we're standing strong or we're falling in weakness, you love us still. Father, I pray that you'd help us today, make us stronger, give us a vibrant testimony for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with me.